Good morning. It's good to be here. Thanks, Bob. And as Bob said, I'm Joan Hogan welcoming you to the Prairie Doc Radio Program. Rick Holm, our Prairie Doc, is unable to be with us today, so I'm happy to welcome Kelly Evans, an internal medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me. Well, we're happy to have you back. And also with Kelly is Sydney Borman, who's a pre-med student at South Dakota State. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. It's good to have you with us too, Sydney. Thank you. What year will you be in school next year? Um, I'll be a junior this fall. You'll be a junior this fall. Okay. I told Sydney when we were coming in here, it's funny because I recall before medical school shadowing Dr. Holm and him dragging me into this studio <laughs> one morning. Just and a little so now kid being forced on, yep. forced on you, right? <laughs> well, here we are, back at it again. Uh, glad to have you here and glad to have both of you here. Uh, Dr. Holm is having um, just a test to see how he's doing with his surgery, with, the, with his cancer, and we hope it's in remission. He'll find out this week, I think and we'll see how he goes. So that's why we have Kelly with us today. Uh, I mentioned to Kelly, Dr. Holmes' program tomorrow night. Uh, th- for those of you who may have missed it in December, it's a rerun of a program that he did with the two physicians that helped him through his cancer, and they were two physicians with the Mayo Clinic. So the program tomorrow night will be on the Mayo Clinic and also discussing the cancer and uh, the treatment that these do- doctors provide. So it should be an interesting program. We talked about it, and um, what I did was review their program. And there was a question that came up that I thought has come up before in uh, different calls that we've had coming in over the year, and that's discussing hospitalists. Uh, For you who may not be familiar with the term, it's a new term, relatively new. For us old farts, it's really new. But uh, it refers to doctors who work exclusively at a hospital and they're the ones you see when you go in for surgery for any care, and they're called hospitalists. I think we'll take our first break. If you'd want to hear more about this, I'm sure Kelly will explain the role of hospitalists and how people well, how people are treating hospitalists and what they think of them, and we'll do that right after this uh, break. But during the break, you could certainly give us a call if you have any questions of any, any medical nature. The number is 692-1430. Why don't you give us a call, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. This is Joan Hogan, and Dr. Holm is unable to be with us today, but we do have Kelly Evans, who is an internal medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Kelly has brought with her a pre-med student who is who has been shadowing her, Sydney Borman. Welcome both of you to the program. And just before the break, I mentioned the role of hospitalists. Some people are concerned that if they have a hospitalist see them in a hospital, that this doctor is not familiar with them. What do you think of this trend of going for hospitals going to hospitalists? Sure. So hospitalists as part of the healthcare system has kind of evolved over the last decade or two. And in larger urban areas, this has been a presence for a much longer time than we're familiar with in Brookings, for example, where at our Brookings hospital, we just had hospitalists starting uh, maybe a year to a year and a half ago. Um, so the hospitalist role is essentially they are practicing only hospital medicine all the time. These people do not see patients in clinic. So maybe a typical hospitalist might work for a week on and take a week off and they're working long hours and really hard while they're there most of the time. 
I would say most hospitalists are internal medicine trained across the board, but there are quite a few family medicine trained hospitalists too. Um, and probably a little more seen in rural areas. Um, certainly having gone through the transition here in Brookings from what we would call a traditional system, meaning your primary care doc is the one who sees you in the hospital before they go to clinic every morning, um, to a hospitalist system, meaning if you're admitted to the hospital, your primary care doctor is not a presence during that hospital stay, generally speaking, but the hospitalist is the decision maker. And then when you're discharged, you go back to the, the primary care. Certainly there are patients who are kind of used to the old system, have seen their doctor for a long time and are a little bit uncomfortable with that. Which Some of us get quite old and aren't really <laughs> happy with a lot of changes. Yeah. There's a lot of changes going on in our lives. So. Yeah. And, and I, that's absolutely understandable. I would say the, the benefits for the, for a patient, to have a hospitalist. Number one is that, that somebody is there almost all the time. Um, so for example, in the traditional system, I might go and see my patients on rounds and be at the hospital for an hour in the morning, and then I'm busy all day with clinic patients. So, so you can't come if needed. You I mean, really I, can. I do. You can. I but can, but then I, my clinic patients probably suffer. They either right. wait or get their, their appointments canceled if an emergency occurs. Um, so I think having a, a physician present and able to come to the room and go as needed if, if acute issues arise, if family want to come and talk and ask questions during the day. Day that isn't at 6 a.m. I think that's a, a benefit to the patient. I think we're probably able to keep sicker patients here in Brookings than we did when there was not a physician at the hospital all the time, for example. Um, you know, if I'm admitting a patient, I know they're going to sort of need hour to hour monitoring. That's not comfortable for me to be over at the clinic and trying to take care of a patient like that. So most of those patients probably went to Sioux Falls before. And um, so I, I do think there are benefits to patients. Now, the downside is, is there miscommunication? Is continuity lost? Are things changed in the hospital that then aren't managed in the clinic setting? That's something that is our responsibility to make sure we're doing a good job about communicating the inpatient and outpatient uh, providers either directly or by excellent documentation. Well it sounds as though there are they, I don't believe our medical practice would have moved a hospitalist if there weren't real benefits for the patient. Because mm -hmm. usually uh, a doctor's um, belief is do no harm. And right. they're not going to go to hospitalists if it's causing harm. They're doing it because it's beneficial to the patient. Right, right. And and certainly there is some some data out there. It's kind of, This is kind of a hard thing to study, but data about things like maybe... Uh, hospitalization time might decrease by a half a day or so. I mean, another good example is it's hard for me if I'm rounding at six in the morning, I can't really discharge a patient if suddenly they're they're really stable and ready to go home at three in the afternoon. A hospitalist can do that because they're there. They can make the decision later in the day, whereas that patient might have stayed another night under the old system. Well, kudos to the new system. I think it'll be <laughs> just fine. And for those of you who've been concerned about it, I hope that Kelly has uh, allayed your concerns. We'll, we have another question that came up and it had to do with primary care physicians. When do you decide to make a referral to a specialist? That's a that's kind of not quite the hospitalist, but another thing. Yeah. You're a primary care, someone comes in, you usually take care of them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you refer them to a specialist. 
what criteria is there when you decide on that? Yeah, and that's a complex question, and it, it's going to be different based on the provider and, and their specific comfort level with given diagnosis or what's going on and somewhat the patient. I mean, quite honestly, I have some patients coming in who really want to be referred to the specialist early. And I have some that, you know, would rather never go to Sioux Falls if they, (laughs) if they don't have to. So, I mean, there are a few reasons that I think about referring people to the, a specialist and specialist is a broad term that could mean any number of things. One is certainly if there's a procedure that is necessary that I cannot provide. And that's a common reason we, we, we refer people for surgical procedures or endoscopy, for example, because I don't do colonoscopies or EGDs. So that's kind of a simple reason. Um, sometimes in the diagnostic process, we end up referring. If, if, if someone comes in with a problem it's complex and it's not clear what the diagnosis is. Um, Sometimes for diagnostic reasons, we end up referring to to specialty providers who either have better expertise in in a given problem or have a capability to do further testing, which sometimes means procedures. or, and then if you count, encounter certain diagnoses, so either rare diagnoses that is something that I'm not familiar with management of, that's a great reason to refer on. Um, diagnoses that require treatment, you know, I can, for example, I can make a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, that's something I see frequently, but treatment of autoimmune disease specifically is something that requires toxic drugs, close monitoring, and should be done by a rheumatologist, in my opinion. Um, we can die, often we might diagnose cancer, but it, we don't treat cancer. We have to refer to oncologists for that. So, so some of these more specialized treatments of diseases that are, are beyond something that we do day in and day out. And some of those fields, oncology is a great example. Um, those fields are ever-changing. There is ongoing research and drug development that it is that the oncologist's job to keep up with those changes and trends in the in the latest and best treatments and um, so so those referrals are also common. When you mentioned the all the changes in cancer treatment, mm-hmm. I just read recently about, I may be mispronouncing this, I've been known to do this, is it genomic or genomic? Genomic. Genomic. Mm-hmm. I was right the first time. Genomic testing to identify mutations in mm-hmm. a cancer and a different way of treating that. Mm-hmm. That that sounded just fascinating. That's yeah. is that cutting edge or more yeah, recent? Yeah, and it, but it is happening. I mean, we there there are some uh, cancer drugs now, and some are even being advertised on TV that do target certain. Uh, genetic mutations that are found in certain cancers and so that is I would say it is cutting edge but it's the research has been going on for long enough that we do now have FDA approved treatments for for certain uh, cancers and they're being used and they're they're making a difference for those they are and they're less toxic than old style chemotherapy if that makes sense because they they better target the specific cancer cells as opposed to, you know, old chemotherapy infusions, which we still do need to use in in a lot of cases for cancer, also kill the stomach cells and also kill some other cells that that cause all those bad chemo side effects. Could you define genomic? I use the term, but I, for people who don't know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, so it, it refers 
it's it's a similar term to genetic. And when you're talking about genomic testing, genetic testing, it's kind of a um, it, it, the the difference to the layperson is not okay. uh, significant. So genetic mm -hmm. testing, a lot of are, are yeah, familiar to with to some degree. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, we're due to take a break. We'd be glad to have any calls you might have, Doctor. Uh, Kelly Evans is with us today, and you can give us a call at 692-1430. We'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening today. As I mentioned at the outset, Dr. Kelly Evans is with us today, and with her is Sydney Borman, who is a pre-med student at South Dakota State University and hoping to get to med school in a couple of years. Right, Sydney? Yeah, hopefully. That's the path I'm on. So. That's great. What do you major in, then biology or? Yeah, um, SDSU actually just made a more specific major, human biology, so it's more centered on um, humans rather than plants and other aspects of biology. We are a ag school, so a lot of times <laughs> it's been plants for biology, but now they have a new major or a new, is it a minor? Or yeah, before it was more of a pre-professional specialization, so they just decided to make it a major. Okay. It's actually amazing. You know, when I, I graduated from SDSU in 2006 and I had a microbiology degree. And so people who wanted to go to medical school or PA school or other professional schools probably majored in biology or microbiology or maybe some other things, but that was the common path. Um, I, w I got to attend a graduation ceremony that the, the Department of Biology held for all of the SDSU graduates this spring who have been accepted into medical school and other professional schools, meaning PA school, optometry school, physical therapy, et cetera. There are a lot of SDSU graduates who got into medical school this year, and it far exceeds uh, what was the case when I was a student, which was just 12 years ago. So that department, has really made a difference in being able to offer that as a reachable career path to, to kids here at SDSU. It was well, that's awesome. that's exciting to hear yeah. because we all love South Dakota State University. I'm yeah. a graduate too and uh, it's a fine college. I was just talking to a friend whose son was attending a meeting in Rapid City and this fellow came up to him and said, you sure look familiar. He said, uh, yeah, and the guy was Jerry Lohr and this young man <laughs> is... 40 and mm -hmm. he said um i don't think you know me mr lure and he said yeah yeah your face looks really really familiar and he, did you grow up in brookings i did i did finally he said you know my father graduated in your class from sdsu that's why he looked familiar oh because interesting he looked, he like, looked his just dad. like his dad <laughs> at 20 so it is funny but mm -hmm. the sdsu alum are a tight-knit group mm -hmm. we're very proud of being sdsu alum yep. and i'm glad you're going to join us sydney that sounds great well we have had one or two calls come in and we'll get to those now one had a question about heartburn sometimes i have a heartburn previs said helps reduce the symptoms now i recently read that it might increase my risk of stroke previs said is that so what can i safely take for heartburn what do you suggest so I am not aware of a risk of stroke that goes along with this. I don't know. It's good uh, to know. Yeah, yeah. There was, so there was a study that came out maybe two years ago that made an association and, and this made it into the, the nightly news. And so a lot of people saw it and came into the doctor to talk about it, about proton pump inhibitors, which include the, the generic names would be omeprazole, ezomeprazole, pantoprazole, 
several brand names, but they're commonly used medications. We use them all the time for reflux and for ulcers and that kind of thing. There was an associational study that linked use of those medications possibly to development of dementia. And obviously that's a very scary thing for people to hear. Um, the problem is that the study itself was not reliably done. So when we talk about scientific studies, observational studies, meaning let's just look at this and see if, if people that took this drug versus didn't take this drug had an increased risk of that. It, it sounds like it might be good science, but it's really not um, because you can't separate probably the group of people that were on that medication. Also, probably were just sick, sicker people in general. They might have been on a lot of medications and had higher risk of dementia for other reasons. So it was a bad study, but it got out there publicized. Um, it and so it I wasn't think, scientific in its base. It was yeah, just observation. I, mean, I shouldn't say it wasn't scientific. It's just it the method of the study is not good enough for medical science, okay. um, in my opinion. So um, so ask you know if you see that stuff out there, bring your source and ask your doctor about it to to get a good opinion of whether it's real or not. I don't think that those medicines probably, they do have some risks. And if you don't need it or can get by with less medication, then we should do it that way. But good, a good reason to ask your doctor about it. Okay. So don't worry. No strokes. <laughs> Just <laughs> Not talk that to your I doctor. Know of. Yeah. Talk to your doctor. All right. We had another caller who is concerned about her daughter who has become a vegetarian. She has no meat and no fish. And this mother is fearful that she will not get enough iron in her diet. Should she be worried... Should this mother be worried? What can her daughter eat other than meat to fill her need for iron? I don't think spinach alone is the answer, was what <laughs> she said. So her daughter probably said, well, I get spinach, so I have iron. Yeah. I So I guess what I would say is certainly it would be reasonable to take a supplement or multivitamin in that case, whereas for most of us who have balanced diets, that's that's not necessary. There is iron in things other than red meat, and there are a lot of people across the world who don't have red meat in their diet and still have good nutritional status. Um, certainly, there, I'm I'm not a vegetarian. I love my meat, but <laughs> but potential benefits of vegetarianism may may be that people have uh, lower BMIs and stuff like that that there I think there are potential benefits to those diets too I probably wouldn't worry too much about it certainly if she has symptoms of anemia she should see someone and be tested but most healthy people at a healthy weight that um, I mean even if you eat breakfast cereal and look at the label there's a lot of iron um, fortifying a lot of our processed foods so it's probably okay and I would think if her daughter, if she's young enough, she is reading a lot and yeah. she's seen a lot about a good, healthy vegetarian diet. There's so much on the, there's so much bad about the internet, but so much wonderful <laughs> yes. things that yep. go on with the internet. You really can find a lot of things. Yeah, probably scares you a little bit when somebody comes in with their own diagnosis because they got it on the internet. Yeah, I I would agree. I think there there is a, a risk to the information present on the internet because it's unfiltered and anyone can write anything, put it on the internet and make it look legitimate, um, which sometimes it does sometimes make our jobs harder. Sometimes it's great. I mean, if people are using good sources and come in well-informed with great questions, those are savvy patients and, and they're 
empowered to manage the problems that they have in their own health. But there is garbage on there. Don't get me wrong. And it's not uncommon that that I I spend time trying to dispel some of that garbage and sometimes unsuccessfully. I mean, people come in with beliefs that no number of degrees, unfortunately, are are going to uh, change their minds about. They know they're right. Yeah. (laughs) That's human nature. So, (laughs) well, you deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I would guess. uh, Well, you don't know because the internet has been here ever since you started practicing. But I would think a physician, Dr. Holmes' age, would find a world of difference. Yeah, and I think there's there's probably generational differences if you're being broad about that. um, The older generation that that is that is more comfortable with maybe a paternalistic relationship with their physician, um, which is not how I sort of trained and not really my style versus um, I I would say overall younger folks value more sort of a shared decision making. And that's very, that's very broad and generalized, but I think there is some truth to that. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're due to take our final break. We appreciate you listening to this program. It's been Dr. Kelly Evans giving all this great advice, and we'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. This is Joan Hogan, and in the studio with me is Kelly Evans, who is an internal medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. She's brought with her Sydney Borman, who's a pre-med student from South Dakota State University, one of many now. We're so happy there's a number of pre-med students mm-hmm. at South Dakota State. Phenomenal university. Glad to have you with us, Sydney. We asked for your questions, and we did have a woman call in with uh, a question during that break, and she wanted Kelly to discuss C. diff. Discuss C. diff in a 93-year-old female who is hospitalized. Yeah. Kelly, tell us what C. diff is. So C. diff is sort of the commonly used term for Clostridium difficile, which is a that's a you know a name for a bacteria. Okay. Oh, so okay. C. diff is something that you hear about. It's not uncommon that we see this. Generally speaking, what we we see this develop in people who have been on antibiotics for other reasons recently, and the we the mechanism for that is that the antibiotics use probably kill the healthy flora or bacteria in the colon and gut, and allows this quote bad bacteria to sort of rise up and and take over and cause infection. So typically, people who have C diff present with diarrhea, and sometimes it might even be bloody diarrhea. Sometimes people can get enough that they have fevers and sepsis with C. diff. That's less usual. Certainly in a 93-year-old, um, that this can present quite a bit of problems. One of those things can be dehydration because of the diarrhea and, and the inability to eat that it can go along with in addition to the sepsis. Um, and I guess one thing that's not clear from the question is, was the did the 93-year-old get C. diff and then it was admitted to the hospital for C. diff, or did she acquire C. diff in the hospital, which also sometimes happens. You know, someone gets hospitalized for pneumonia, puts on, gets put on antibiotics, and then on hospital day three, they develop diarrhea, and we find that it's C. diff, um, beca- probably because of the antibiotics that happens too. In any case, it's, we manage it with different antibiotics. Um, so like if someone comes in and in the outpatient setting in the clinic and they just have diarrhea and they're, they don't need to be in the hospital, they can keep up drinking plenty of fluids. We give them pill antibiotics to use. Um, and then if, if someone's very ill with this, we might 
change the antibiotic. There's really two, and now there's there's a third uh, FDA-approved antibiotic for this, which is more expensive and not as commonly used. But treatment depends on how severely ill the patient is. Whether this patient had C. diff a month ago and then it recurred, that might change our mind about treatment and that kind of thing. But if they're in the hospital, they're probably needing support with IV fluids and that kind of thing as well. Okay. Well, I hope that that helps and dissuades their their concerns. Probably her daughter may have called in asking about that or uh, we, we hope that that answered your question. And for those of you who weren't familiar with C. diff, now we know it's a bacterial infection that will occur and often after taking an antibiotic. Yeah, and this is one of the infections that if, you're, if your loved one has this infection is in the hospital, you'll be asked to wear the fancy paper gowns and gloves every time you go into the room because we are very cautious about because this can spread to other the people. Can. The bacteria oh. can. And this is, interestingly, this is a bacteria that can form spores. So it doesn't, uh, it's not sterilized by using the alcohol that's in the room. You actually have to wash your hands with soap and water. So Quite different. Yeah, it's a little bit specialized uh, isolation precautions in the hospital. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, we had uh, just one more question that just came in, and we look. We were kind of short on time, but we'll see (laughs) if we can touch touch on this. A caller said that she knows some cancers are more easily treatable than others. Why is that? So that's a loaded question as yeah, well. I thought, so, two minutes. You can't yeah, answer so, that in two minutes. So can cancers you? are what I would say are heterogeneous. One cancer may be very different from another. It depends on what type of cancer, the organ that it originated. It depends on how localized it is or how early it was caught. So, for example, prostate cancer, 90 plus percent of the time is a very slow growing cancer. It's usually caught early and, and easily treated. We, we, we struggle with whether we should screen for prostate cancer because we some there you know for example in older men it's probably not ever going to cause them a problem whereas there are some aggressive cancers that that that's just the nature of them and it's very complex it's it has to do with genetics and many other things so there isn't one one no i could i think an oncologist could take three hours to answer that question And since you're not an ecologist, we won't put you on for three hours. Well, Kelly, we are low on time. We do appreciate you coming in. Is there any other topics or any anything that you wanted to just comment on before we close out the program? No, and thanks for having me. We wish Dr. Holm the best in his trip to Minnesota today. Yes, he's mm-hmm. heading to Mayo Clinic, and he's going to get a determination on how his, speaking <coughs> of cancer, how his uh, cancer may be controlled, hopefully, and or disappeared. That would be really nice. Mm -hmm. But uh, for all of you listening, we do hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. As always, you can visit Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org, where you may also learn about the exciting activities of the Healing Words Foundation. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock on South Dakota Public Television, On Call with the Prairie Doc, will feature the Mayo Clinic and two physicians who Dr. Holm will be meeting with today. One is uh, Robert Lohr, who's an internist, and the other is Mark Trudy, the abdominal surgeon who did Dr. Holm's original surgery. Thanks so much, Kelly. I appreciate you joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening to Prairie Deck Radio. I'll close with Dr. Holmes' weekly reminder, stay healthy out there, people.